You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. We'll be in 1 Samuel 19 and 20 this morning, so go ahead and have your Bible open as we begin to walk through these two chapters of Scripture. But perhaps in your life, you've ever, have you ever had to function in a role of being a peacemaker? You ever found yourself in that sort of awkward position of having to diffuse a conflict in your own family? Maybe you did that in the car on the way over here this morning, diffusing conflict between family members. Or perhaps you're forced to, to sort of become a mediator between two friends whom you love, but just can't seem to get along with each other. Jesus tells us in his Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. And so it's right for us to seek to intercede and to bring about peace in relationships. And praise God that he does use his people to bring peace as we bring the gospel to bear on people's relationships. And and the Lord can use us even to bring peace between those who are at enmity with one another. But sometimes what's achieved in those peace talks, if you will, is a phony peace. The peace is a pseudo peace. And it's only a matter of time before the festering sin in the heart explodes yet again. And what do peacemakers do when they find their peace talks have failed? When they find in the hearts of another a violent and hideous rage. Well, they protect the vulnerable. They protect the vulnerable. We pick up our study in 1 Samuel, and we find that Jonathan, son of Saul, is placed in an awkward situation as a peacemaker. And Jonathan needs the wisdom to navigate the escalating conflict and tension between his father, King Saul, and David. As we've seen in our study of 1 Samuel, David and Saul had a great relationship to start off with. In fact, Saul first loved David in a son-like way. But as David's ongoing victory in military combat, particularly after his defeat of Goliath, it begins to earn David public favor, public praise, Saul grows envious. And over the course of chapter 18, as we saw last week, Saul attempts to deal with David, but he does so by concealing his murderous motives. He tries to execute David without the public fuss by simply placing David on the front lines of military battle, hoping that the Philistines will take care of the problem of David. But every time David goes out and is coming and going, he succeeds. He has victory, and the people love him all the more. And not only the people, but now Jonathan and and Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David as well. And so at the start of 1 Samuel 19, Saul's jealousy keeps brewing. And it's brewing in his heart, and it has to come out. And so Saul becomes more open in sharing his murderous intentions with his closest confidant, including his trusted son, Jonathan. Let's pick up reading in chapter 19, verse one. And Saul 
spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David. Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Imagine being Jonathan sitting in King Saul's oval office, ready to hear your father's platform for the nation, only to discover that the only item on Saul's agenda is to come up with a plan to execute your best friend. When Jonathan hears this news, his heart sinks, and he immediately goes to warn David after that meeting, and he tells David, you need to hide while I attempt to defuse my father's rage. And this is the first of four instances in chapter 19 by which the Lord protects David from Saul's bloodlust, the first of four. And so Jonathan goes to his father as a peacemaker, seeking to resolve what, obviously, it's gotta be some sort of misunderstanding. And Jonathan makes a compelling argument, a persuasive argument, doesn't he? We can sort of paraphrase his argument, can't we? Dad, why would you sin against David when he hasn't sinned against you? And don't you see, Dad, that, that David has brought nothing but good things to your kingdom. He's a blessing to be cherished, not an enemy to be eradicated. Remember, Dad, all that, that the Lord has done when David defeated Goliath the Philistine. Remember how the Lord brought salvation? Do you remember how joyful and happy and glad you were over David's victory? Why then would you sin against an innocent man who's only done you good? David simply hasn't done anything wrong. You see, Jonathan is trying to help his father, Saul, see his irrationality. Clearly, Saul must not be thinking clearly. But that's exactly what sin does in our hearts, isn't it? It twists our perceptions. It, it, it quenches our former affections. It blinds our memory. It manufactures delusions in our imaginations. The one we used to love, that we used to consider a son, now we vehemently hate. Ask yourself, do you find that tendency of Saul in your own heart? Do you find a tendency to be in conflict with another simply for invented, manufactured reasons spurred by your sin? The foothold of bitterness in the heart causes all sorts of delusions in the mind. It causes us to assume the worst about others. 
It causes us to accuse them. It causes us to attack them. And so much of the conflict that really exists between us is nothing more than the delusion of sin operating in our hearts. But that's exactly what sin is. It is irrational. And praise God if you have a friend or even a son who loves you enough to confront you in your sin-twisted delusions. And on this instance, Saul listened to his son. He even makes a vow, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul likes his vows, not always very great at keeping them. So for the moment, things return to normal. All seems to, the, the crisis of chapter 18 seems to be resolved. David is brought into Saul's presence just like before. And on first glance, it seems like Jonathan did it. He mediated peace. And so that's not actually the case. While Saul manages to cut down the, the weeds of his murderous tendency, Saul fails to uproot the sin of jealousy in his heart. And it's only a matter of time before that kudzu springs back up again. Let's keep reading in verse eight. And there was a war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. What, what broke down this pseudo peace, this phony peace between David and Saul? Well, it was Saul's jealousy in his heart. It resurfaces yet again. It didn't go away. When David goes out to war yet again, and of course the Lord's with him, he has victory, he wins, we see Saul spiral yet again in that manic rage. And we are reminded yet again in the text here of the Lord's hand is now against Saul. He is putting Saul in this mental instability. And the scene here is almost identical to the same one we saw last week in chapter 18. Saul takes his spear and he hurls it at David while he's playing the lyre. It's at this point, we are reminded that history here is repeating itself. It's repeating itself. When jealousy first took root in Saul's heart, remember the song, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his 10,000s. What happens right after that? The next day, Saul raved and he chunked his spear at David, not just once, but twice. And now after this most recent victory in chapter 19, the pseudo peace Jonathan brokered is shattered yet again as Saul throws his spear yet again at David. If you are a Christian this morning, I, I hope and I pray that you are seeking to put to death your sin by the power of the gospel. Unlike Saul, you, if you're a Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit within you to convict you of your sin and who empowers you to actually be able to repent and to put to death sin. But there's a lesson I think we can learn from Saul's heart that we need to be mindful of. Worldly sorrow isn't true repentance. Temporary change is not true repentance. We can modify our behaviors simply by our willpower, but we can only uproot the sin in our lives 
by the power of the Spirit. If you address the outward effects of your sin simply by behavior modification, not by mortification, meaning putting to death, then it will only be a matter of time before you find yourself engulfed by that same sin yet again. The the, the sort of dam of self-discipline that we put up can't hold back the torrent of wretchedness that lurks within your heart. If all you do with your sin is, is all you do is try to keep it at bay, keep your lust contained, they begin to accumulate over time. And eventually they shatter the barricade and they overflow in a flood of destruction in your life and in the life of others. Paul, in his epistles, does not call us to manage what is earthly in us. No, he tells us to put it to death. And it is by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are actually able, not not to manage sin, but to kill sin. But far too many of us think that sanctification is the quick weed whacking of the flower garden of our hearts. And if you do that, chances are you'll kill the flowers along with the weeds. What must we do? We have to put the weed whacker away and we have to get on our hands, get on our knees, sink them into the dirt, into the filth, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, uproot the sin that lurks within. And by the power of the word and the spirit, we truly can, with the help of God, uproot our sin, not just manage it. Saul doesn't uproot it. He manages it for a time, but it comes back out. And so as Saul hurls the spear towards David, yet again, the Lord protects him. The Lord protects him. David eludes the spear and flees for the night, but King Saul is still on the hunt to satisfy his carnal lust for blood. Let's keep reading in the next section, starting in verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Saul sends his servants to go watch, to spy on David so that the next day they can arrest him and Saul can order his execution. Saul's daughter is tipped off in some ways through this plan. Saul's daughter is Michael, David's wife, And Michael loved David dearly, and she works against her father's murderous plan. Just like her brother, she warns David of her father's intentions. And so David has to leave tonight. You can't wait till the morning. If you wait till the morning, David, you're going to be killed. And so the couple hatches a plan together for David to sneak out through the window in the middle of the night and start running while Michael attempts to delay the discovery of David's absence by using some sort of human-sized image 
some sort of crafted statue, maybe an idol, but not necessarily so. And, and here's where the, the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off borrows its plot, right? As Michael creates a convincing decoy of David under the covers, complete with a goat hair wig. Sounds really nice. I need to get me one of those, right? And the, and the delay tactic, eventually it, it works. Michael tells the guards, well, you can't come and get David. David's not feeling well. And then the messengers go back and tell Saul, Saul, we can't get him because he's, he's sick. Saul says, go and get him anyway. And time keeps passing. And by the time they realize that they've actually been duped, David is long gone. The Lord protected David through the cunning of his wife. Saul rebukes Michael for deceit, but to cover her tale, she lies and fabricates a story that David threatened her in order to escape. But even through Michael's deceptions, the Lord protects his servant. If you were David, where would you think to go next? Your life is obviously crumbling apart around you a little bit. Where could David flee? Where could he go for answers? Where could he go for spiritual counsel? Where else could he go than to the man that anointed him, Samuel, the prophet, who's enjoying his retirement? Let's pick up in verse 18. Now, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he came, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sekiu, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. What a fascinating event, right? We can only imagine the sort of conversation that David and Samuel, that old prophet, must have had. We aren't given a lot of details about it. And Samuel seems to be living among a community of prophets, leading them in some ways. And you might remember earlier in the narrative that Samuel was actually very fearful of Saul after the Lord rejected him as king. Samuel was hesitant to go to Bethlehem in the first place to anoint David out of fear that, the Lord, uh, that Saul would find out and, and come and hunt him. And perhaps in this text, we see a growing courage in the old man, the old prophet, as he seems to take in the fugitive David without any sort of hesitation. And David shares all of his burdens with Samuel. Who knows what sort of counsel, what sort of encouragement, what sort of instruction Samuel offered David at this point. This is the last time we hear of Samuel before he dies. And we can only speculate, and, but it's, it's my guess that this time with Samuel, which seems to be a little bit extended, this time with Samuel strengthened David's faith in the Lord for the difficult days to come while David would run for his life before King Saul. 
And so for a season, they both lived in Naoth, which was a shepherd's camp. They lived there for a while. But Samuel actually isn't the focus here. He's not the point. Rather, what we see that this episode, the focus is on the Lord's supernatural protection of David. Eventually, the news of David's whereabouts gets to Saul's ear, and he sends a squad of servants to go and apprehend the dangerous, treasonous criminal named David. And they go and they try to get David, but the Spirit of God is irresistible in his power. And as the servants approach, we're told that they begin to prophesy. Now, this, this prophesying isn't about spiritual revival in the soldier's heart. No, this is the the power of the Spirit of God supernaturally seizing their bodies and compelling them to stop. The men are put under a God-induced trance to protect them, to protect David from them. So after the first attempt, Saul likes to try the same thing over and over again, right? So he sends a second battalion, a second squad, and the same thing happened to them. And then Saul said, well, I'll send a third squad. Same thing happened to them. They prophesied too. Anytime David's enemies approached him, the Lord himself interceded and stopped them. And so after the third failed attempt, Saul decided, well, I just got to go and do the job myself. I'm going to go and I'm going to go get David. And he eventually makes his way towards Samuel. But the same thing happens to King Saul as well. The Spirit of God seized him and we're given this humiliating description of Saul as he lay naked in the dirt before Samuel, God's prophet, who's the humble one now, right? And thus the old saying about Saul bears repeating, is Saul also among the prophets? You see, we've seen four instances so far of David's protection, of how the Lord protected David. We saw Jonathan's peacemaking, David's evading of the spear, Michael's trickery, and the naked soldiers and the naked king before the prophet Samuel. And if we have any doubt at this point, reading so far in this chapter, the last instance makes it very, very clear, very, very explicit. It is by God's power that David is kept safe. The Lord will keep David safe even if he must seize the body of Saul and force him to lie naked in the dirt. God will do it. Saul must be the most powerful man in Israel. But Saul's will cannot overpower God's will. The Lord is a refuge for David, and the Lord will protect his anointed. And if the Lord is determined to protect, who can stand against him? Who can stand against him? Make make, make no mistake, the Lord has complete and absolute power to protect us even from our most dangerous of enemies. But are we promised physical protection like David? Well, the answer to that must be no, we're not. We aren't David. The Lord purposed for him a unique role in his plan of redemption. David was the Lord's anointed. He was God's king, and the Lord will not let his king die before he ascends to the throne. Therefore, the Lord exerts his full strength and the wisdom of his providence to protect David from harm. But you and I aren't David. Hate to break it to you, you are not the Lord's anointed. We aren't guaranteed safety. 
In fact, as we read in the New Testament, sometimes, sometimes it's the Lord's will, as Paul says in Romans 8, that we are to be killed all the day long, to be regarded as sheep, to be slaughtered. Sometimes it is the Lord's good will to withhold his protection over our lives so that we might burn brightly as a testimony of the gospel for his glory. Nevertheless, in Christ Jesus, we are still more than conquerors through him who loved us. Though our bodies are not guaranteed protection in this life, our souls are secure in the sovereign hand of God who holds us fast and who will raise us on that last day into everlasting life. And this should give us confidence, absolute trust in the Lord's will, no matter what befalls us. Ask yourself that question. Do do I rest in the sovereign will of God each day? Friend, let me encourage you. You can trust God with your life. You can trust him. May, May the Lord's protection that we see so clear here of David in 1 Samuel 19, may it remind us that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God who is indeed working all things for our eternal good and for his eternal glory. But as David flees from Naoth and Ramah, he returns, he goes back to Gibeah to go see Jonathan. The whole change of events of this chapter, as Saul is now openly communicating his murderous intentions and now pursuing David, all of this bewildered David incredibly. And the two men, Jonathan and David, advanced a a deep covenant bond that they had with one another in chapter 20. Let's begin reading in chapter 20, verse (coughs) 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again and saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. It's a lengthy conversation between these two friends. 
And you can sense at the opening of the conversation that David is in disbelief as he raises these questions. What have I done? So while David inquires of an explanation for why Saul's pursuing them, it's fascinating that David also humbly lays open his life before Jonathan's introspection, pleading that if Jonathan can identify any unknown sin that David has committed against Saul, please tell me and inform me of it. David is innocent. Saul's rampage is irrational, but yet I think we would all do well to regularly and humbly lay our lives before the introspection of a trusted Christian friend. And so have we covenanted together to be watchful over one another. And so does David invite Jonathan to be watchful over his life. What do you see in me? What sin is in my heart, in my life? But as Jonathan examines David in this particular situation, he sees no sin that he's committed against Saul. He says, far from it. And Jonathan pledges to David that he shall not die. Jonathan aligns himself with David over and against his father. Jonathan chooses righteousness over family loyalty. And he cannot, he cannot, he refuses to support his father in his unrighteous hunt for David's life. And so Jonathan commits to using the influence he's accrued with his father to discern the intention, the extent of the intentions of Saul to kill David. Now, why, why the need for Jonathan to do this? Well, it's been pretty clear to us so far that Saul wants David dead. What's most likely going on is that the two men are wanting to know if Saul's hunt for David is just the result of his unstable and volatile moods or if this is a deep-seated, committed drive for David's blood. And so David presents a plan, a test, if you will, to discern what's going on in Saul's heart. David is obligated in his military duty to report to table with the king on the new moon, and David will plan to be absent at that event, and Jonathan will discern Saul's intentions by gauging his reaction to David's absence. If Saul inquires about David, then Jonathan provides the excuse for David's absence. And if Saul gets angry, then Jonathan will know that he's determined to kill David. We see here that David is in a desperate situation and he humbly and completely puts his trust in Jonathan, a trust expressed through their covenant bond made together before the Lord. And so Jonathan commits not to betray David not to rat out David's whereabouts to Saul at the table. David places his life in Jonathan's hands. But how will Jonathan get the news to David? They move the conversation out to the field. Let's keep reading in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, before, uh, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant 
with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. In the field, Jonathan reiterates his covenant commitment to David. He makes an oath to David that he will bring the message to David. And that if Saul intends to do David harm, Jonathan will see to it himself that David is able to fly and flee to safety. Jonathan recognizes that whatever happens at this feast, he, he understands, he intuits, he knows that his father will now recognize that Jonathan has aligned himself with David. Everything will change after this event. David is in need. And instead of Jonathan taking advantage of that need for his own advantage, Jonathan decides to serve David. He decides to be loyal in commitment to his friend. If ever there was a time to get rid of the man who was threatening to steal your throne that Jonathan was entitled to by birthright, this was it. All he had to do was just tell Saul at the table where David was hiding. But Jonathan had the spiritual insight to recognize that what has been happening. Look at what he says. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. The spirit of the Lord has abandoned Saul and has now rushed upon David as his chosen king. Jonathan knew this. The Lord has given David the throne. And Jonathan not only humbly bows out of his claim to the throne, but now commits to protecting and defending David to ensure that he gets there. And as Jonathan pledges himself to David, he recognizes that he most likely won't get to see David ascend to the throne. And so he pleads for David to show kindness to Jonathan's house, a, a promise that David will keep once he's king by caring for Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. But in all humility and love, the two men make a covenant together. Reminded of Jesus' words, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And here Jonathan exhibits the sort of love that Christ Jesus will model, a humble, servant-hearted, sacrificial love. And what a friend we have in Jesus. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jonathan comes to David's aid because he recognizes that David is innocent. But the Lord Jesus comes to our aid while we are still guilty. Even though our consequences are deserved, the Lord Jesus is a friend who protects us from the wages of our own sins. He satisfies the demands of justice and he protects our souls from the enemies of hell that seek to drag us there as Jesus dies in our place. And Christ Jesus makes a covenant with us, a covenant drawn and written in his own blood forever, binding himself to us. Notice the covenantal language that comes out of this section, particularly in verses 14 and 15. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. The word steadfast love is the Hebrew word has said, which is typically translated as the Lord's loving kindness. It's a covenantal term. And it's the word used for God's loyal and covenantal love for his people. In the covenant friendship that these two men had, they are seeking to be instruments of God's loving kindness to each other. God is exhibiting his loving kindness 
through their covenantal friendship. Jonathan pleads with David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. David, I'm gonna die. I'm not getting out of this alive, but to my family, show me the steadfast love of the Lord through your actions. Jonathan and David, in their friendship, we see the sort of relationship that exists between Christ and his church. And so the bond of covenantal love is extended not only between Christ and the church, but within the church herself as members join to member, as soul joins to soul. As we covenant together as a church, we are to show each other the steadfast love of the Lord. Remember what John wrote in his epistle, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. The the, the sacrificial love that we have received from Christ fills our hearts as we're bound to him, and then it overflows in love towards our brothers and sisters. And so the covenantal faithfulness of Christ should cause us to be eager and zealous to enter into covenant with others in a local church as we pledge ourselves to serve them as Christ has served us, to love them as Christ has loved us, to protect them as Christ protects us. So to become a member of a local church is to pledge yourself for the spiritual good of others, to gladly and joyously lay down your love, your life for one another, and to love each other's souls as your own. The the oath of the covenant between Jonathan and Saul exists because of the love they have for one another. But ultimately, this love comes from the Lord himself. Between these two friends, we see beautifully how much Love and loyalty go together. Love and loyalty go together. And love without a commitment to sacrifice for the other isn't love at all. That's a memo our culture desperately needs to hear. So therefore, if you've been born of the Spirit of God, if you have had God's love poured into your hearts through Jesus Christ, love one another. A plan has been made. A covenant has been established. And now, the minutia of the details. How will they safely communicate Saul's response? Let's keep reading in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows on this side of you, take them, then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so Jonathan explains here exactly how he will use the arrows to communicate with David should it be impossible for Jonathan to speak with David directly. And Jonathan reiterates before he departs the covenant commitment they they have made. The Lord is between you and me. The oaths these two men have made was before the Lord. And now we discover what will Saul's response be. Let's read in verse 24. So David 
hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul didn't say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. For Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. The first day comes, David doesn't show up as required. Saul speculates, you can see it gnawing in his mind. Well, maybe he's just ceremoniously unclean. Maybe he's gonna show tomorrow. And then the second day comes, David's still at the table. He asks Jonathan about David's absence and Jonathan follows the plan. He tells Saul that he granted David a leave of absence to Bethlehem. And upon hearing this, we hear Saul roar in carnal fury against Jonathan, his own son, calling him the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You see, while Saul is clinging to his power, he rebukes Jonathan for not doing the same. As long as David lives, Jonathan will never be king and he'll never have the kingdom. But Jonathan doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't have the same values as his father. Jonathan has already given up the kingdom to David. And in response to Saul's hatred, we hear Jonathan anticipate questions raised by Pontius Pilate before a bloodthirsty mob. Why should he be put to death? What evil has he done? Jonathan pleads for David's innocence. And yet while Pilate washes his hands clean of the matter, giving the crowd what they request, Jonathan will work to protect the innocent and to defend the Lord's anointed. And this only further enrages Saul as he takes his spear and now turns it towards his own son. Now, Jonathan knew for sure Saul's intent. Nothing was going back to normal. His attempts at peacemaking are over. Saul would kill David at all costs, even if it meant killing his own son to do so. And so Jonathan attempted to make peace. Now he realizes there is no peace. Saul has aligned himself with the serpent and is now at enmity with the Lord's anointed. And Saul will not stop his strike against his heel, no matter what Jonathan says. 
And in righteous anger, Jonathan leaves the table. He's grieving over David. And while Jonathan had hoped for peace, he hoped that things could be reconciled. Now things have reached the point of no return. Saul will not back down until David is dead. And so he recognizes that David, his friend, must now go. He must go into exile. He must run for his life. We get the scene in verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stray. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. The sign of the arrows existed as a way for them to communicate should it be unsafe for Jonathan to speak to David directly, should Saul's spies be following him. But Jonathan shoots the arrow, he triggers the sign. And after Jonathan sends the boy back into the city, the coast must have been clear because then the two friends reunite for a emotional goodbye. It's, it's an intense, very heavy-hearted goodbye. The friends weep, David weeping most of all, because they know that after this event, everything has now changed. There's no going back. The two men have only one more recorded interaction, and it's a brief one in 1 Samuel. Functionally, they recognize at this moment their close friendship will not be the same. This goodbye could be their very last. And the emotional goodbye demonstrates the, the deep affection and love these two brothers had for one another. But they reiterate the covenant that they had made. They reiterate the covenant bond. The Lord is between the two men. And unlike Saul, who was at enmity with David, between Jonathan and David's offspring, there will be peace. Jonathan has made a difficult choice. He has chosen rightly to align himself with the Lord's anointed king. Will you choose likewise? And all who enter into covenant with Jesus will find themselves forever at peace with God. In the Lord Jesus, we have a friend who is faithful in his covenant with us. Jesus keeps his word. He does not break his promise. He works for our good. He pleads our case. He defends us against our enemies. He loves us completely down to his very own soul. And he sacrifices himself for our sake. Thus, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, a covenant ratified by his own blood. And Jesus pledges in the gospel to protect our souls from death, bringing us into peace with God, forgiving us of our sin, and he wins and gives to us eternal life. As you turn from your sin and as you put your faith in Jesus, don't you realize you are bound 
to him, you are united to Jesus forever. No matter what befalls you in this life, if you are in Christ, you are secure and you are safe in the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. While the nations rage, the church of Christ will always be at peace. And may the peace of God rule in our hearts as we are bound to Jesus. So we are bound to one another. Unity in the church comes through our unity with Christ, our union with Christ. And so as we look around this room, and as you stare at your fellow covenant members, members, people you have covenanted with before the Lord, may we say, the Lord is between you and me forever. As we are bound to Jesus, so are we bound to one another forever. Church, don't you realize what this means? It means we'll spend eternity together. Eternity. And as we sacrifice And as we give ourselves to one another, the friendships that we develop in the local church, in the bond of the covenant that we have through our union with Christ, those relationships will grow and expand and increase for all eternity. And even when we find ourselves like Jonathan and David, when we are separated from each other, according to the Lord's purpose, that gospel bond ties us together forever whether you move to a new town and covenant with a new church or whether you travel to another country to start a new church, the Lord will always be a bond between you and me. It reminds me of that fourth stanza of blessed be the ties that bind. Hear the inner pain of the forever hope of Christian goodbyes. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have entered into covenant with us, a covenant poured out by your blood. And Lord, so have we now entered by that blood into covenant with each other. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to relish the precious truths of the gospel, Lord, that we would be so grateful for your protection of us as you have paid the penalty of our sin. And Lord, as your love that has been poured into our hearts now overflows in love for one another. Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would help us to love one another well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.